Hi, uh, my name is Gary T. McDonald. I'm the author of The Gospel of Thomas the Younger, and I'm very pleased to be with uh, Dr. Barry Trachtenberg today. He's the author of The United States and the Nazi Holocaust, and more recently, a provocative article for the Institute of Palestine Studies called Shifting Sands, Zionism and American Jewry. Barry, in preparing for this, I've been trying to find a bridge between our concerns, our two concerns, that involves uh, a bridge between a re revisionist story about the origins of Christianity, my, my concern, a story about Jesus, a, a first century Jew who taught universal love, but was misunderstood and co-opted by Gentiles who wanted to build a mystery cult around his life and death that he and most Jews could never accept. Bridging that with what I see as your concern, uh, more the uh, present-day dilemma of Jews trying to survive in a hostile world, while nationalism, both within Jewish ranks and outside of it, threatens the tolerance they've traditionally stood for since the great diaspora. Does that ring with you? Yeah, it rings very much. Um, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast with you. I'm really pleased to be in conversation and really continuing a conversation with you that we've had for many, many years. Um, I, I, think, I see many ties between our two projects. Um, some of them are along the lines of who gets to own the land. You know, I'm, you know that, that's one of the central questions of my work. Your question is very much who gets to own the story. Another has to do, I think, with the tension between universal values and whether it's the uh, specificity of nationalism or the specificity of religious traditions. And so I think there are these tensions there that are present between our two works. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Um, in Jesus' time, before the destruction of King Herod's second great temple, I would say that the Jews were ultranationalistic in the sense that what defined them was their belief that God favored their nation and that a Messiah would soon come to rid them of Roman occupation and uh, make their belief system the gold standard for all nations. Uh, now, that is uh, a, sort of an outsider's view of what I see as the origins of uh, a kind of nationalism that might be raising its head today. Uh, can you can you uh, comment on that, uh, considering uh, what you just said about uh, owning the story and owning the land? Sure, I'll try. I think that the the Jewish community that was present in the land of Israel or Palestine in the time you're discussing after the fall of the Second Temple was actually much more diverse than perhaps uh, your characterization lends. You know, already by this time period, about 50% of all Jews in the world were actually living outside of the land of Israel, which meant that they were in regular contact with non-Jews, very often marrying non-Jews, having children with non-Jews, sometimes converting them into Judaism. So you already have Jews being something of... Uh, much more kind of multicultural, maybe even multinational, if we can use that term anachronistically, people. But those Jews who are certainly located around the temple, I think, very much fit with the description that you're offering. Although they too are often very much at odds with one another. You know, you have some groups who see themselves as really tied to the fate of the Roman imperial leaders. 
you have separatist groups, you have divisions among the different separatist groups. You have some groups of Jews who have removed themselves from the temple entirely and who are setting up their own camp uh, sort of within a stone's throw of it, but trying to create counter institutions. So you actually have a very kind of factionalized community that's already present. And, and maybe that's the lesson for today is that there's never been just one Jewish people. There's always been many Jewish peoples often kind of competing with one another really for the right to own the land and the right to hold the story. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it seems, though, that the, your article brings up this idea of this nostalgia for the, um, the original Jews in Palestine for owning the land, and, and that identification with owning the land is a source of a new kind of a nationalism that I, I think you fear is uh, threatening. Uh, would you say that? Uh, without question, I, 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 the Jewish turn to nationalism in the really the late 19th and early 20th century, you know, it started as a reaction to anti-Semitism that was rising dramatically in Europe. And it became clear to large numbers of Jews that there wasn't going to be a place for them within the new national order that was emerging with the breakup of different European empires. And Many Jews in response, you know, came to America. Many Jews in response turned to international movements like socialism or communism. But initially small numbers and then growing numbers, as the situation got worse, began turning towards Zionism and really accepting the, the, the belief held by many anti-Semites that Jews are a fundamentally unassimilable people. They're fundamentally different. And Jews themselves began to say, well, maybe we are different. Maybe we should have our own language back and our own history back and perhaps even our own land back and perhaps through this process of becoming a nation like other nations maybe then jews will be accepted in the world as just one people among many peoples and if not and that seems to be the case at least jews will have territory of their own where they can defend themselves from external threats Mm -hmm. Well, it, it seemed like to me the point of your article was that um, that there's a real danger in the sense that that kind of uh, Zionism that's growing ever more intense uh, has gotten to the point where even to question the pro-Israeli lobby or to question Zionism itself is uh, gets you in a position where you you could be called anti-Semitic. Jews and Gentiles. Is, is that that's your feeling? Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And unfortunately, this has been a phenomenon that began really within moments of the creation of the state itself. You know, as early as the 1950s, you have some ardent defenders of Israel begin calling out their critics as anti-Semitic. This really begins to take a, a turn to the extreme in the last two decades or so where people have lost their jobs, they've lost tenure at universities, they've lost book contracts, all for speaking of, the, of Palestinians as human beings and really deserving of the same rights uh, as Jews or other peoples. And what this has done, I think, has allowed for this ultra-nationalism that we see manifesting in so many parts of the world, not just here in America, but in Russia or the Philippines or, or Turkey or in France and in the Netherlands, really has taken root within Israel as well. And it's receiving almost blank check support from many American Jewish institutions 
who see that their primary obligation is to defend Israel at all costs, even if it means putting them really in bed with groups that we would otherwise identify as white supremacists. And this, to me, seems the real danger and something of a radicalization of American support for Zionism, something that we hadn't seen even just a few years ago. Well, in sharp contrast, and I don't want to put you on the spot in terms of having to embrace my my concern, but um, the figure of Jesus is an interesting counterpoint to that. Because even though we don't know who the historic Jesus really was, uh, I like to think I know who he was, or at least I draw a portrait of who he was in my book. And with some evidence from the gospel, although there are many parts of the gospels I can't stand, but who I like to think he was, was this figure of universal love and justice who would try to inspire people to leave behind nationalism along with a lot of other things, leave behind egoism, leave behind obsession with the acquisition of material things and maintaining social status. I see him as this uh, wisdom teacher like the Buddha, like the great Stoics, who wants wants us to leave all that behind. So even though Christianity has stolen Jesus from the Jews, do you think my revisionist portrait of him offers any model for Jews today? Or is Jesus just too toxic a figure for Jews to uh, I mean, that's my for that fear. to work? You know, that's my fear is that, you know, unfortunately, you know, following Jesus, you know, um, came Paul with his sort of universalization of Christ's message. And then ultimately the coercion that came along with it, not only is Jesus's message available to everyone, it's actually sort of required for everyone and those who weren't following his message certainly within Christian Europe, found themselves persecuted. So you do have this long history of nearly 2,000 years of anti-Jewish sentiment rising out of the Catholic Church. So I think it would be a pretty hard sell to Jews um, to maybe rethink the classical Jesus. However, if your vision of Jesus is one that is correct, that means that Jesus had to come out of a community of people, and that those people would have been Jews themselves. Right. Perhaps it's possible to find other strands within the Jewish tradition that can reflect those values of, you know, ideas of universal equality, of pacifism, of speaking out against injustice. I mean, those present those values are, I think, there within Judaism. But I may not know enough, I think, really about that ancient period to to claim that they can be traced all the way back. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess the thrust of my book is that uh, the, the the story of the Jesus that I imagine is a story of a man who lived and died, but then after him, his story was c- completely rewritten to fit the agenda of Paul and his followers so that they could institute this uh, – create and build and institute this religion that would, then did become a power base that, that was uh, – a persecution machine, although maybe that that wasn't the the idea of many of the followers. It certainly seems like what happened. Yeah, yeah. and I, and I think that's where maybe our projects can meet one another in some ways. It goes back to really who writes the story and who can control that story's transmission, and what are the stories that get left out? What are those histories that get left out? 
because they don't fit some sort of narrow understanding of the past, right? Right. Uh, and, you know, we certainly see this with Zionism, you know, which emerged as the primary movement of Jewish nationalism. Zionist historians, Zionist scholars of all sorts began creating a new understanding of the Jewish past, one that really focused in particular on Jewish ownership over the land of Israel, which was Palestine at the time, um, really denigrated 2,000 years of Jewish experience in the diaspora, not just in Europe, but in many, many parts of the world, seeing it just as a historical aberration. And so when Zionism emerged as a, as a political force, it really sought to eradicate this long diasporic tradition and return back to this time period of kind of imagined sovereignty. And it's such a dangerous model, it seems to me, because it removes and eliminates the, the presence of all sorts of other peoples who in, in, interacted with Jews, other ideas that Jews came into to confrontation with and had to engage with. And that over those 2,000 years that had been erased, you know, the, the, the history of Jews was one really of mixing with other peoples, and that gets eliminated. And so the, the people who are controlling the narrative now uh, are ones I think we really have to be pushing very, very hard against in, in a way that's, I think, similar to you with your work, is that you're pushing hard against this dominant view of Jesus um, in order to perhaps return him to a more uh, authentic representation yes and and it is such a dominant thing that i feel like uh, a, a, an ant pushing a, a boulder up a up a mountain but uh that which sort of brings me to a to a, a a sort of shift in what i'd like to talk about which is personal reasons for all of this um i know i have deeply personal reasons for what i've written about which I'm happy to talk about, but do you feel that way? Do you feel like that you and people like you are under attack and that's why you write what you write? Uh, it's a good question. It's one I've struggled with over the years. I think my, you know, my interest in Jewish studies and maybe Judaism came fairly late um, and later than maybe it did for many of my colleagues. I remember... Um, when I graduated from Hebrew school, so this would have been in the 12th grade, my parents made me go to sort of after school. I, I gave a speech on why Jews leave Judaism, you know, pretty much saying goodbye to it entirely. And it took many, many years before I began to reapproach it, not until my mid-20s when I started doing graduate work. And I began to realize that the Jewish history that was being taught to me or had been taught to me as a child really didn't correspond very well with the actual past, right? It had been selected in ways to reflect kind of suburban American values along with support for Israel. It had very kind of thin levels of spirituality to it. And when I began to approach it again as a scholar, it began to open up for me all sorts of possibilities. And I realized that this enormous past was all of a sudden kind of available to me. And I began to, to identify with those Jews in history who really kind of stood outside of the, the dominant authorities that were present, you know, the, the various rebels and revolutionaries, the ones who were challenging the traditions. Those are the ones who caught my, my fancy, and those are the ones who continue to this day to inspire me.
Who would that be? Spinoza? Spinoza in some ways. Um, Moses uh, Mendelssohn, I would think it would be another one. You've got, obviously, Karl Marx and Rosa Luxemburg and Hannah Arendt and, you know, more recently, Susan Sontag and, and Judith Butler. You, you know, these figures who one historian once called non-Jewish Jews, that people who yeah. are thoroughly within the Jewish tradition, but out of that position are thinking constantly about universal questions about what is the best for humanity rather than simply what is best for the Jewish people. And this comes up a lot in my work on the Holocaust. And you may have saw or seen in the news very recently, there was a controversy around a statement that the Holocaust Museum put out um, regarding ways to, to use the Holocaust and to think about the Holocaust. And they really insisted that the Holocaust is this unique event uh, against which nothing else can be compared. And I, and really happily hundreds of other scholars uh, of, of, the history, of the history of the Holocaust, have pushed back against this, this idea, believing that you know, th- this notion of never again can't just mean never again to us, right? It has to be never again, like we have to fight against genocide and look to the Jewish past as a way really to confront intolerance, violence, ethnic cleansing of any sort, even that which is caused by Jews. You know, mm-hmm. we, you know we like to imagine ourselves as somehow history's greatest victims, and you know, I think a case can be made for that, but I think being a, a victim doesn't exclude one from possibly also being a perpetrator. And so I see that as my responsibility with my scholarship, you know, and my teaching to keep reminding people that we have to understand that Jews are part of the world, which means Jews contain the best of humanity and some of the worst of humanity. And Jews can be capable of producing some of the most important contributions, but also capable of some of the worst violence. And Mm -hmm. And that's an essential understanding uh, if we actually want to complete that project of normalizing the Jewish people uh, rather than either putting them on a pedestal, you know, as philo-Semites would do or as Zionists might do or as, you know, kicking them in the dirt as anti-Semites might wish to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Um it seemed like, again, one model for doing this would be going back and reclaiming Jesus for the Jews. And um, the thing that excited me more than anything, I think, was discovering a, a Jewish writer named Hyam Maccabee, who wrote a series of books. He's dead now, but uh, he wrote uh, one book called um, The Mythmaker, Paul and the Invention of Christianity, and also one called Jesus the Pharisee, where he talks about how um, in the Gospels, Jesus is identified as uh, being among people who are um, are in, in conflict with the Pharisees, when in fact, much of what Jesus says in the Gospels are things that the great Pharisee teacher Hillel would have said, said or would have said, and that uh, Jewish, uh, that Jesus really is a Jewish reform figure that that might very well sort of be the model for um, what it is you're talking about reclaiming that's getting lost with this uh, push into this new Zionism or this more intense form of Zionism. Yeah, indeed. And, and I think, you know, you have 
you have some scholars, do very interesting work, people who work in Jewish studies who have strong Jewish backgrounds who have sought to, to write about Jesus. I'm thinking of like A.J. Levine, for example, who's at uh, Vanderbilt University. Uh, you have the, the New York by the Muslim scholar Reza Aslan on, on Jesus as well, really trying to give a, a new understanding to it. And although these works are really highly regarded, I, I still think it's going to be a very, very uphill battle to make the case to Jews that they need to rethink Jesus. Uh, you know, in the, the Jewish tradition, Jesus is a fa- considered a false messiah who's one in a long line of other false messiahs. Um, and throughout Jewish history, there's really this awareness of messianic figures. There's this famous line that says, if you're if you're planting a carob tree, which is a tree that takes a full generation to uh, produce fruit, and someone tells you the Messiah is coming, first finish planting your tree and then go out to greet the Messiah. Meaning, don't just assume that messianic figure is going to mean you don't need to prepare for the future any longer, but prepare for the future and then go with sort of great skepticism to this messianic figure. Because, of course, what Jews have seen is that Time and time again, messianic figures have emerged often from within the ranks of Jews themselves and brought really great destruction to the Jewish community. So right. I, I think it'll be a challenge, although, I mean, you've written really a terrific book that has gotten me to, to, to think um, quite a bit about um, these questions. It's, it's going to be a tough challenge. It's going to be a tough sell. Mm. Yeah, you, you talk about false messiahs. It's funny, I've never thought of it that way. I always think of it in terms of failed messiahs, you know, people that really tried uh, to do this or that, whatever their agenda was, and that they just simply uh, didn't fulfill the prophecies. So in that sense, they were false, but but also um, what they were trying to do was something so uh, so difficult that probably no one could accomplish it, at least on the grandest scale. But um, the the reinterpretation of Jesus as a Messiah through the lens of Paul's theology is a is a whole other thing that that of course you know then Christians could claim well you know he was the Messiah when in fact uh, by by Jewish standards which are this, the only standards because they are the ones that created the prophecies of what the Messiah would do or not do uh, Jesus was a failed Messiah in my portrait of him. He's a man who who is very skeptical about the idea that he's the Messiah. He he's forced under a certain amount of social pressure to uh, to try to to see if it's true or not, to enact uh, certain parts of the uh, the prophecy in order to see if the rest of it would come true. And of course, it doesn't. But that that leaves him more a, a sympathetic character to me than one uh, like previous failed messiahs uh, who had uh, proclaimed themselves messiahs and, and led armies only to get slaughtered by, uh, you know, the Romans or others. Interestingly, within Judaism, many of sort of the great failed or false messiahs are ones who, are, who were reluctant to take on that position themselves. You know, and I, I'm thinking, for example, of the early modern figure known as Shabbatai Svi, who... Um, was convinced by other people that he was actually the Messiah and led a really profound revolution in the Jewish world that led to all sorts of long-term trauma and chaos in the Jewish world. Much more recently, um, in the Hold late- on, Bef- 
before you go there, what's his time period? And well, his time period was in the the mid seventeenth century. And uh, where? Um, well, he was all over. He's from uh, now Greece, Salonika. Uh, made his way to Palestine. Uh, began to get involved in uh, mystical movements. And a figure named Nathan of Gaza, so from the same city of Gaza today, um, began to spend time with him, began to think, suspect that he was the Messiah, and kind of slowly convinced him over time that he indeed was the Messiah. This figure, Shabbatai Svi, began to argue uh, theology of engaging with sin, saying that the way we're going to defeat sin is by engaging with it, meaning uh. <laughs> and encouraging people to sin. And so people began to stop following the laws of the Sabbath and the laws of, you know, dietary restrictions, laws of kosher, uh, the laws of, you know, that govern sexual contact. And eventually it caused so much of a stir within the Ottoman Empire that Shabbatai Svi was imprisoned and basically told, convert to Islam or die. And much to many people's surprise, he converted. And... um, that conversion led to such chaos in in the Jewish world that many scholars have said that this is the beginning of the modern age. That this is uh, where the, the power of the rabbis was, uh, you know, sort of was dealt its um, most decisive blow. Um, and he that's sounds a- like a great. He sounds like a great character, and I think I've just found the. Uh- the, the uh, model for my next book. That's a fascinating, <laughs> fascinating figure. But you have this actually much more recently too. So you may have heard of Chabad Judaism, which is a yeah. it's a sect of ultra orthodox uh, Jewry. Well, their 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 last Rebbe, their last leader, they have never appointed one um, after he passed away. It was a figure named Menachem Mendel Schneerson. And in the last decade or two of his life, his followers began to suspect he was the Messiah. And they began just referring to him as that. Some even went so far as to call him the creator, which is really Christianity, right? I mean, this is what, you know, uh, it's claimed of Jesus. That it's not just a, sort of a child of God, but God himself. They began to claim right. this of Schneerson. And then when he died, um, there were people who were waiting for, I think we're going on 25 years now, and even to this day are waiting for him to rise. And so... There's a video camera on his gravesite. It's a site of massive pilgrimage. You know, he's buried near JFK Airport, um, <laughs> New York, and tens of thousands of followers visit him every year, sort of you know hoping to be there at the the time of his return. So you still have this oh. messianic impulse still within Judaism, but it tends to cause much more chaos than it has brought about any kind of redemption. Well, that's uh, that's what I had hoped for anyway. It was redemption. I was hoping that uh, maybe I could inspire something, and uh, maybe in the long run I, I will have chipped away at something anyway. Um, I want to thank you, Barry, for uh, engaging in this conversation, and uh, it's always a delight to talk to you. You're one of my favorite people to uh, have discussions with because you're always so on top of things. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you.